check. On this episode, we interview the CEO of Aspen RX Health and we discuss provider status and new pharmacy models. Hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of RX Radio. I am your host, Richard Waithe, and I have a uh, returning guest with us, the CEO of Aspen RX Health, David Medvedev. David, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. So this is your second episode. The last episode you did with us was episode 102, and we dove into a little bit about Aspen RX Health. But for those that may not have... Um, uh, listen to that yet, and this might be the first time they're they're getting uh, to listen to you speak. Can you please just give a, a brief introduction to yourself, and um, and then we'll go into a little bit about Aspen. Sure, be glad to. Uh, thanks again for having me. Uh, so I'm a pharmacist, one of the co-founders of Aspen RX Health, and have been a pharmacist now for about 20 years, and have spent uh, the vast majority of my career at the intersection of healthcare and technology. And for the most part, really focused on optimizing medication use, empowering pharmacists with better decisions and enabling new processes of care. Awesome. And Aspen RX Health is, I think, one of the revolutionizing uh, companies that has really entered the, the space probably in the last at least 20 years. Um, obviously, I haven't been in the industry that long, but I think it's it's something that's really changing the way pharmacies provide care and, and the way pharmacies are utilized in healthcare. Can you give us um, a quick intro to what uh, what does the company do um, and maybe what the vision is and what and how does it work? Sure. Um, as you might imagine, I get asked this question quite often. And I think one of the easiest ways to visualize or articulate what it is we do is by way of examples. I like to think of Aspen RX Health as uh, Uber, uh, the ride-sharing company, Uber uh, plus Match.com, uh, so the dating service, if you will. Uh, for pharmacist services. And so the Uber component of it is the fact that we've created a marketplace for pharmacists. And this marketplace allows a pharmacist who has capacity uh, or time, as you might think about it, and they want to monetize that time by leveraging their expertise. We've created a place for pharmacists to go to this marketplace and to identify patients that are in need of clinical consultations delivered by a pharmacist someone to review, opine, and recommend on how to optimize medication use. And the demand side of this marketplace, what I think of as patient flow, today is driven by health plans, um, but that will grow now with uh, some new investments that we've received. And the Match.com part of the analogy that I gave is the fact that we not only provide this marketplace and we you know, allow pharmacists to come in and monetize their time, but we also play matchmaker in the process. So we create profiles on everyone involved in this marketplace. So every pharmacist tells us where they live, what languages they speak, what areas that they are they have advanced skills or enjoy practicing in. And then we have the same type of profile for every patient who is pushed and enters this marketplace. And so we know where the patient lives, their preferred language to communicate with the healthcare professional and what their clinical needs are. And so we go beyond just you know, matching a pharmacist to a patient for care, but we also want to meet that patient and pharmacist on ge geographic, socio, um, you know, different types of 
um, variables that we believe drives a better experience for everyone involved and ultimately better outcomes. That last part is really one of my favorite things about the platform. You know, I, I always think about how when I first got into pharmacy, it was always about, you know, right patient, right time, um, right drug. But this is almost a scenario where it's like right patient, right pharmacist. Um, and I think that's just, you know, something that's amazing that we, we've never really probably had the ability to do before. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and that's really a part of our vision here and why we think we're doing something quite different here. Now, there's been some big news recently. You mentioned, you know, hinted to it earlier about the um, uh, the capital that the, the funds that were raised. Can you what details can you give us about um, about that news and um, and about the fundraising? Sure. Um, this was publicly announced uh, recently, but um, you know, I've had the privilege to uh, be one of the co-founders of Aspen RX Health. It was a startup company. And part of that process is the necessary capital that it takes to um, you know, grow a business like this, especially as we invent a new part of the market. And so we um, just closed on what's known as our Series B raise, and we raised a total of $23 million that we could infuse into the business to help catalyze future growth and continue to build out our vision. That's amazing. That is a large sum of, uh, <laughs> of capital there. So being that that's something very significant, um, what are like, what does that get used for? What, what do you see as the next steps for the for the company where that capital will kind of be utilized? Sure. You know, first, I think before we get into kind of the use of proceeds, I'd like to acknowledge who our investors are. Um, first, I, I would be remiss if I didn't highlight um, the, the role that Humana and Flair Capital Partners, uh, they played in really being our founding investors. And so, they had conviction in what pharmacists can do. They understood the power of pharmacy practice and really made a calculated bet on myself and our team uh, to really build out that vision. And so, you know, really uh, just had fantastic partners with Flair and Humana. And in this Series B round, we have now brought in new investors, some of them quite strategic. Uh, so Bessemer Venture Partners, uh, who is uh, incredibly smart and, and a talented venture capital group um, who's invested in gig economies and different crowdsourcing platforms, as well as a number of healthcare companies. They bring some of the expertise around building out these new marketplaces. And in addition, we have Takeda, Novartis, and McKesson Ventures, who've all come to the table to help us uh, to build out this vision that I'm going to share with you. And so um, you know, use of proceeds, as you've asked, um, you know, we started with medication therapy management and connecting pharmacists to provide comprehensive medication reviews for typically senior citizens who are comorbid and taking many, many medications. But we have a further vision to continue the clinical services and the spectrum in which we're providing those. Uh, so next step for us is to look at care transitions. And that's where McKesson really plays a role for us as they work with a large number of health systems and, and different parts of the pharmacy ecosystem uh, to really build into the vision of care transitions, post-discharge counseling, and connecting to the patient um, after they leave the hospital and avoiding readmissions. And then the next step for us is to think about specialty pharmacy. And so when we have more medications that are moving from infusions to self-administration, uh, patients are now asked to receive medications in the mail and self-administer. 
some of these medications have very complex side effect profiles or drug interactions to be aware of. Having a pharmacist almost as a concierge level or um, providing this higher standard of care, uh, empowering this patient with more information and more confidence in using the medication is where we see the role next for our pharmacist community. And so having the likes of Takeda, Novartis, and even McKesson, who also has a deep bench of specialty practices, will help inform the market need, um, access to pharma to understand um, how we plug into the ecosystem that exists and how we bring the pharmacist to the forefront to play a, a bigger role in the process. So I think the transitions of care piece is really interesting and, and fascinating because essentially what you're, what that might look like, and I, you know, maybe just trying to think through what the workflow of a pharmacist entering that space looks like. So a patient gets discharged because they had heart failure, let's say, and uh, there's a, a mechanism that they'll, that patient will be able to be connected with a pharmacist in the network from Aspen. And then that pharmacist would be able to ensure they go through the steps of making sure that that readmission doesn't happen, that kind of thing, right? That is correct. Um, so there's a mountain of clinical literature that suggests that about one in, uh, excuse me, about three out of four patients who get readmitted to the hospital will do so because of a medication complication. So sometimes it's they were taking a medication before the admission, they were prescribed something new after their discharge, they're still taking them both, even though they weren't, weren't supposed to, and it's leading to some type of complication, so duplication in therapy or significant drug interaction. The other side of that that happens quite often is the patient may have been admitted for congestive heart failure. They were prescribed new medications that they were to pick up when they leave the hospital, they didn't pick them up or they did and they don't understand how to take them. And so three weeks later, you know, they end up back in the hospital with secondary condition or complications from their primary admission. Um, so the ability for a pharmacist to intervene in the moment, reinforce the need to pick up those medications, take them appropriately, monitor for side effects to get the patient over the hump of the new start. Um, we see a, a really profound role there for pharmacists and the clinical literature suggests that time and again, that it's effective. That's awesome. Yeah. I think that would be really interesting to see um, really uh, and see the impact that, that that's going to have switching, switching gears a little bit. Uh, you, you launched a blog earlier this year, which congrats on, on your first inaugural post, by the way. Um, but there was, it was a very interesting and I think thought provoking article. And there's a couple things that stood out to me. One of them being that you had, you had mentioned, and this is kind of around um, provider status and billing for uh, services for pharmacists, but one thing you had mentioned was that we dispense about four, 4 billion prescriptions a year and that if we actually try to charge, um, you know, healthcare essentially for some of those interactions that we have, that it's possible we could potentially bankrupt healthcare if you look at what that amount across the nation would look like as they start to add up. I've never actually kind of thought about it that way. I think that's kind of like a paradigm shift for me. And I'm sure that there's others that will kind of uh, not be super pumped about that sort of notion where, you know, it might not make sense to go down a route like that. But can you maybe dive into that a little bit and maybe give your thoughts as to why and, and, and kind of what you were kind of hinting at there? Yeah. So first, uh, thanks for uh, bringing up the blog. Um, you know, I'm a bit nervous launching that, but I'm doing it, I think, genuinely for all the right reasons. Um, so the name of the blog is Off-Label Indications, and it's really just kind of a thought-provoking place for me sometimes to swim against the current and to break a bit of the groupthink that we have within our profession and our industry. 
and to look at things from all sides and not just kind of get in line because an association or a or single thought leader told us this was a good idea. And so, you know, provider status was the first thing I picked on because you know, I graduated pharmacy school 20 years ago. I went to an HHA meeting uh, immediately upon my first year of graduation. I was involved as a student. And I remember John Gans, the CEO at the time of APHA, stood on stage and said, this is the year we're going to get provider status. That was 20 years ago. And if you go to APHA meetings, every meeting since, that has been the rally cry of our profession. We will get provider status. And so I started to really unpack that over the years to understand why it was so important. And, you know, the two main thoughts around it was, one, hey, we're healthcare professionals and what we do are these what's called as cognitive services, and that's kind of a data term. But um, when we're not putting the big bottle in the little bottle, we should get paid for what we know. And the other part of the argument was, well, if we want to work with other healthcare professionals, they won't take us seriously unless we are also recognized as a provider. So provider status legitimizes a pharmacist. And so both of those really made me take a step back and just kind of watch over time. And the idea that, you know, pharmacists, the, why we need provider status so that we could get paid for what we know is the one that is really frightening to me because where does our responsibility as a pharmacist begin and end with dispensing a medication? Because when we are providing counseling to the patient and if we're doing it appropriately every time, we should really be having deep conversations about the medication, lifestyle implications, other medications and diet that may impact that medication there's a lot of information we share that I think is part of our responsibility of dispensing. And so if we start to isolate on then what are the consults we should be charging for, they're not really tied to the, the dispensing of a medication. And so it's a completely separate event. And I think there are different models of care then that start to introduce themselves where um, we're not organized today as a profession. So by having provider status, does it immediately provide income and revenue for pharmacists if we're doing it in a different model of care. And so it really makes us rethink the practice in general, and, and we're not there yet. So it's almost like the dog chasing the car, what happens when they catch it. I think we're starting to see that in some states where provider status is being passed. And we're not seeing these profound you know, shifts and redesigns of pharmacy practice in any given state. We're seeing some pockets of excellence, but that's about it. And so I'm not convinced that provider status is the end-all, be-all for our profession. That's interesting. And you talked about the new models and how, you know, in, in your blog also, you mentioned how pharmacists should be a part of new model, new models. But how do we how do we begin that process? Because it almost sounds like even if even if we do get provider status, like let's just say like that, you know, that, it, that thing that we've been working on for so long actually did happen. And like you mentioned, it's not going to be a profound change. I think there's still a lot of work to be done there, which is probably involving some of these models, but how do we start to show like the, like our value there? Because I feel like there's, you know, there's always studies about what pharmacists on um, the impact a pharmacist has on the healthcare team and, um, and the, you know, even costs that we save healthcare. Um, so what is it that we are, you know, what is it that we're lacking or, or, or what is it that we need to do to be able to show that value, to be able to be a part of whether we have that provider status or not, um, because that provider status really doesn't still doesn't change like our knowledge. Our knowledge is still vast and, and our impact is still great, no matter whether we had that provider status or not. So how do we then start to show that value and start to become a part of these models? 
Yeah, um, I mentioned in my blog, I don't think showing the value is um, really what's being asked of us. I think to your point, there's a ton of literature, clinical evidence out there that's, that demonstrates the value a pharmacist brings uh, when they are part of the care team and the impact they have in working directly with the patient and with prescribers. Um, there's no doubt that we help optimize care, minimize morbidity and mortality. It's been demonstrated time and again. Uh, what's missing, in my opinion, obviously I'm biased, is um, there is no opportunity for these care teams to leverage a pharmacist organization at scale. So, um, you know, organizations that are for, that are really reinventing the care model, uh, who are going into the patient's home with nurse practitioners and physicians and physical therapists, um, they don't have a place to go at scale anywhere in the country and tap a pharmacist and bring a pharmacist in for the consultation and then have, you know, the pharmacist kind of go back to what they were doing. And so until an organization can provide a service like that, um, the pharmacist is just missing. And so, you know, in my role at Aspen Rx Health and the way we're trying to reinvent the process, I've started talking to a lot of these organizations that provide this different type of team care based model. And across the board, they've all immediately said, yes, we are struggling with medications and medication reconciliation. We're trying to solve it with non-pharmacists. But if we had a solution where a pharmacist could come in, we pay the pharmacist in the moment for the consultation, and then the pharmacist is out, that works for us. And so where we have you know, scale in pharmacy practice today, it's in large retail pharmacies. And they, I don't believe, are the ones who are out there talking with these types of models to leverage the clinician. You know, what they're always looking for is how do we get a dispensing contract as part of the service, and then they really ride the dispensing part of it. Uh, but they're not out there having these types of conversations to say, we don't dispense. You know, where the dispensing comes from is a dispensing pharmacist. We are providing the clinician, and that's what we will monetize. And so it'll start, you know, at kind of the modest rate, if you will, of what a pharmacist should be paid. And then over time, as working together, we take on more risk-based contracts then the pharmacists through you know, attribution and being able to demonstrate the value they bring to the team will begin to share in some of the upside as well. What do you think about part of the problem also being that we have a like a branding or like a reputation problem of like the role of the pharmacist? Do, do you think that that's a problem as well? There are elements of that, and that's where you have to have more elevated conversations with sophisticated organizations that understand the role of the pharmacist. I think to the average consumer, you know, to try to articulate the value a pharmacist brings to somebody that's more complex, taking multiple medications, comorbidities, I think it's difficult for them to understand. But when you talk to executives who deal in risk contracts all day long, and they're dealing with the sickest of the sick, they immediately understand what a pharmacist can do uh, in bending the cost curve and adding value to their care team. So I do think there's an element of uh, branding and you know, describing capabilities to the common person. But I think there are more sophisticated customers out there that we can begin this process with. Feeding off that a little bit in terms of maybe it's not necessarily having to do with the, you know, the newer models, but actually maybe it does. But in, in even with what Aspen does now where it's pharmacists directly working out, um, reaching out to patients. 
is what about the the impact that it has there? Do you think that there's an opportunity there in terms of like our the pharmacist place and culture and just in, in, in general with the average consumer? Like, do you think that there should be campaigns around, um, you know, uh, our ability to do things outside of just providing someone with, you know, with a medication at a pharmacy? Absolutely. I, I mean, this has been, um, you know, a real topic of mine for the entire time I've been a professional. I think any pharmacist knows that uh, we can do so much more than the average consumer recognizes. It's it's just hard, right? Like marketing direct to consumers and messaging, especially changing uh, a perception that has been established over a century is just really tough to do. Um, I have the privilege, I we just joined a new organization. Um, it's uh, the Digital Medicine Society and the executive director of the Digital Medicine Society is from England. And so I was talking with her last week and she said, we are so excited to have a pharmacist group involved. I'm from England. We leverage pharmacists like crazy in the UK. And she said, when I came to the States, I can't believe how underutilized pharmacists are. So somebody who grew up in the culture to understand the capabilities and the training of a pharmacist, it was kind of a no brainer for her to have us join the Digital Medicine Society. But, um, you know, we grew up, you and I grew up and, you know, the pharmacist was the person who was, you know, at the corner drugstore and dispensed medications to us and answered a random question. But I didn't fully appreciate the level of training until I went through it myself. That's interesting. I wonder, I mean, you know, I'm thinking about the magic wand that I do not have, obviously, but it would be great to have, you know, a single organization that the sole purpose was to educate the public about the, the new pharmacist. We should yeah, that. that that would be that would be fantastic. I know the APHA has tried. There's been um, you know consortiums of different association execs who've uh, given this a run. Uh, I think APHA started the No campaign years ago, and I think every October during Pharmacist Month, the No campaign comes back. Um, so I, I'm not suggesting that we haven't made any strides, uh, but I, again, I think there are pockets of excellence around the country. Um, you know, we have got uh, different state associations who may be more impactful than others. Just nationally, I think we've under messaged on the capabilities of a pharmacist. And it, it's just it's really hard. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a noisy healthcare system in general, and it's even harder to message direct to consumer. Yeah. I mean, especially now with the way just marketing in general has exploded, you're not only you're competing with just trying to get the information out, but you're competing with all other marketing and messages out there. So interesting. Well, thank you for diving down that rabbit hole sure. <laughs> with me. Yeah, my um, pleasure. So let's talk about the uh, the pandemic. So, you know, we're unfortunately entering into a time where it almost looks like we might be peaking or it's just still on, on the um, on the rise in terms of cases and deaths. And, and um, what I'm curious to hear your thoughts on are, you know, what are the impact? What is the impact that you think that going through this pandemic is going to have on on the pharmacy profession? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a very sad state for our country. And, um, you know, I'm encouraged by the vaccine. I hope the rollout continues to accelerate um, and that we see the impact from it that we know we will. Um, You know, the role of the pandemic on the practice of pharmacy, it's interesting. Uh, I've been tracking some data that suggests that um, the number of visits a patient will take to the pharmacy you know, went way down. So if you follow kind of the trend lines, 
when the pandemic hit, we saw a huge surge in dispensed medications and mostly in retail. And then it, it immediately plummeted for months. And so this was like May, June, July. People just stopped taking their meds and going to the pharmacy. And then all of a sudden it came back. But the net net of it now as we start 2021 is um, we're seeing more mail order, um, not meaningfully more, but we're also seeing more 90-day fills at retail, which means at a minimum, if somebody was going into their retail pharmacy three times in three months, they're now going in one time in three months. And so I think there's no doubt that you know the volume of prescriptions being dispensed will continue to grow. Some of that will be filled through automation and other, you know, more complex models of tech, check, tech, and central fill. Uh, but medications will continue to be used. Uh, comorbidities continue to rise. Complexity in therapy is there. I think the role of the pharmacist will be greater than ever because they will not be seen in the corner drugstore as much. They'll be taking more complicated therapy. And so we need to reallocate the workforce and to make sure that we have these clinicians, these pharmacists who are monitoring appropriate medication use and almost proactively identifying who to contact, who to consult, and when to intervene with these patients. What about the um, the the job market in a sense? Have you seen, because I, I know that there has probably been a huge demand now, obviously, for pharmacists to administer um, the vaccines, but... What are your, you know, is there any, what's your intuition maybe on what the market looks like in terms of the, the current influx that was, that was required? Do you think that's something that's going to kind of uh, keep steady or do you think it was just going to be kind of like a peak and, and drop again or any, any thoughts there? Uh, I suspect it'll be, it'll peak and it'll drop back out. Um, I also think it'll be filled by pharmacy technicians and others. So in the emergency use authorization, that was uh, the federal EUA that was um, signed into practice, um, it was very clear that pharmacists and pharmacy technicians could administer vaccines. Um, I also know other types of healthcare professionals have been tapped to do this. So I do think there's this moment in time where there's a bit of a surge on um, accessing pharmacists to provide immunizations. Uh, it's kind of a mixed bag. I've talked to a large number of pharmacists since uh, the vaccines have started rolling out, some are excited about it and others are terrified by it. Um, they weren't fans of doing immunizations before the pandemic. And now it's like even less interesting to them. So um, I, you know, it'll activate some, uh, but I think in the end, it will just end up, you know, back to where we were pre-pandemic as far as the need for pharmacists. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Especially, you know, I think about too, if what if that dose has to be yearly? I, I think Moderna just released something where they said it might be a, at least a year's worth of effectiveness, but it would be interesting to see if, you know, the vaccine administrations kind of have to keep up with the current pace that we're, we're doing over, over the course of, of a year. So very interesting. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. All right. So what Pro, what technology piece of technology that you had complete faith in that you thought was going to be awesome and game changing, whether it may be in healthcare, but maybe something else, but it just was a total flop. Um, hmm. My wife bought me a tennis racket that had Bluetooth that could give me all the feedback on the racket head of what I was doing. And so I got all excited. I Bluetooth it all to my phone and I showed the pro at my club and he shrugged his shoulder and he goes, yeah, you hit topspin and you hit more forehands than backhands. <laughs> nice. That, that was the last time I used it. So. <laughs> uh, 
because it's game changing, right? So <laughs> yeah. It was supposed to be game changing <laughs> in the literal sense. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, um, what, uh, thank you for, for your time as always. Um, I think that this was obviously a really great conversation and, and I, I really do implore people to um, check out the blog. Um, so how is it that they can, they can get access to, um, all the articles that you'll be writing? Maybe one of the easiest ways is to look us up on LinkedIn at Aspen RX health. Um, so the blog is posted there. Uh, you could also visit our website at www.aspenrxhealth.com. And at the bottom, we'll have a link to our blog as well. Um, and please, you know, like I said, it's intended to be provocative, uh, a, a bit of a, a counter argument to um, contemporary trends. And hopefully we hit a nerve or, you know, we trigger an idea for you. And please share those with us, um, either directly on the blog message me directly on LinkedIn um, or, you know, message the company and we'd love to respond to these things. So um, thanks for, again, uh, Richard, for calling that out. Awesome. No problem at all. Well, David, thanks again for your time. Really appreciate it. Oh, always a pleasure. Thank you, Richard. Best wishes to you. you all enjoyed that episode i will make sure to put a link to the blog in the show notes uh, make sure to check out the article um, and follow any of the uh, new content that aspen rx health creates as always really appreciate you tuning into the episodes and i hope you have a wonderful rest of your day Pharmacy.